0: So this is episode 11 and I'm talking to Ruben Bins, who is an expert on lots of things to do with tech but we get into things like the bias of algorithms, data privacy, big tech companies and the ethics of their practice. It's a really wonderful conversation and I can't wait for you to hear it. Let's go. Today I'm here with Ruben bins who's a friend of mine, and I'm going to ask him to introduce himself.
1: Hi, um, so yes, my name is Ruben Binz. Um, I am a researcher. Um, I work at a computer science department, uh, and I also work for the information commissioner's office, which is the UK's data protection regulator. And uh, I work on issues to do with um, data and privacy, Um, machine learning, the web,
0: ethics, law, that kind of stuff. I feel like Ruben has a deep knowledge about stuff that I talk about quite a lot in the pub with a completely uninformed uh, (laughs) perspective. (laughs) Um, And I suppose I am constantly seeing you publish articles which seem to have a really interesting focus and then I am failing to read them in depth. <laughs> and I, I so I suppose that that's my kind of selfish reason for wanting to talk to you. But also I think that the things that you're thinking about and writing about are really of the time. And I've had an increasing number of conversations with my friends about data privacy and about the companies that are increasingly using our data and exposing us to adverts and... There are loads of varied perspectives among my friends and, and I, I suppose I kind of think it could be useful for us to talk a bit about that kind of stuff so that other people can uh, think about what they think because I, I suppose from my point of view, the way that I use my hardware in life and, and software in work and life is, is pretty unthinking. You know, I unsubscribe from emails when I can and I and I request that people not send me adverts. If if there's a, a tick box, I can untick. And apart from that, I you know I can't remember the last time that I looked at, for example, my Facebook or Google privacy settings. Uh, so that's kind of maybe uh, an unhelpful way to live life. But I also think it's probably quite a conventional story in terms of the majority of people that we. Uh, know in London or England
1: yeah and I think it's not unreasonable to expect that some of these things you shouldn't have to be worrying about or um, you know you shouldn't have to live our lives constantly like having to tick every box or decide on every little control just to be you know free from being uh, monitored by companies Um so I think there's you know, we we wouldn't have the same approach to, like, car safety, right? So, okay, there are a few things you have to do in a car that are your own responsibility. Like, you have to learn to drive it safely, you know, put your seatbelt on, et cetera. But you don't have to worry that, you know, the engine's going to explode or, you know, that the airbags are not going to work because those things are dealt with by, like, regulation and things that we've developed over time as a society to protect people. So I think there's a similar thing with with privacy um, and this sort of emerging data economy where, to some extent, we do want people to be aware and making choices and to be in control, but we don't want to completely individualise the solution because people don't have the time or, you know, the the effort to, to sort of battle against every
0: little choice like that. And cars is a really interesting example because what I kind of know from picking up snippets of history, is that actually the technology advanced before society could think about what it, it thought about cars. As a result, you had lots of deaths. Mm. And so things like traffic lights and tarmac roads and seatbelts were, were, were a response to that. And so, you know, that that's a great example of the government saying, we're going to make it a legal requirement that you wear a seatbelt and from what I know at the time, people were like, Are you crazy? I, I this is my body, it's, you <laughs> yeah. know, I can do what I want. And and that, and yet now if I don't have a seatbelt, I feel nervous. You know, mm-hmm. I really you know that's something that I really want to have. Yeah. Uh, I suppose that's quite an interesting piece of progress in, in the last what like sixty years or something.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I mean, you know, there are examples from that same uh, that same industry of things that went too far so like I think when they first introduced cars onto the roads the very first cars you had to have a, a person standing in front of them with a flag walking ahead of the car to really? make sure that- <laughs> so you know you can, you can go too far the other way but I think at the moment we're definitely in the sort of wild west zone where you know a lot of companies are operating as if there aren't any rules
0: although there are um, but they're not aware of them, or they're con- conveniently ignoring them. Yeah, and, and I suppose you know you see that quite quite clearly with things like tax,, you know, which I, I think I see more of in the papers than data. Um, although mm. increasingly, I think with the, the way in which the um, newspaper coverage around stuff like the Russian approach to social media as propaganda, it's been quite interesting to see the response from big tech companies basically being like, well, we're trying, but, you know, it's hard. Mm. Um, and, and it seems to be the same with tax, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're trying to pay you tax, but it's, it's a really big operation paying tax for such a big company. So, you yeah. know, it's hard. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a tricky one because when they start out, these companies are small operations and they are um, – you know, they're, they're minimal, their influence is minimal when they start out. And then very quickly, they're, you know, the primary means for people to communicate with each other, primary means for political parties to campaign, mm-hmm. Um, and they suddenly have this huge influence. And they still, sometimes they want to think of themselves more as just, you know, intermediaries who are just there connecting people. Um And it's up to people to connect in ways that are, you know, legal. But actually... When you're in
0: the middle of that, there's a lot more responsibility um, that you have, I think. That's, that's such an interesting perspective. So, like, in 2014-15, I was working with a few friends on a, a, an ed tech startup. And, you know, we essentially were a platform for schools to share students' work. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that we were going to connect parents with education more closely and we were kind of at this point where we we're like who's the data controller who's the data mm. uh oh, what's the other one processor. yeah okay the data processor and now you, you know you now work for the ico but obviously this is a, a now closed down company so i can say what i want <laughs> um but you know we i suppose to some degree we were like well if we just define ourselves as the data processor and put the people who upload the content as the controllers then that means that we have less responsibility and You know, I don't know if that's legal or moral, but at at our size, it seemed like quite an easy workaround. And if you kind of fast forwarded us to the size of something like Facebook, I could see how at that scale, it just becomes like an inappropriate option. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And an interesting thing is how do you define? So so it comes down to who's in control, uh, who's deciding the means and the purposes of um, processing that data. And that actually is not something that you can contractually define Mm. it. You could say in the contract, you make all the choices about this, but if the buttons in the platform to change things are not in the control of the nominal controller, then they're not the controller. And so it becomes very tricky in these kind of platforms to to detect that. And very often you can't predict ahead of time who's going to be in control because they're dynamic systems that connect many different um, people and algorithms and um, you know processes, which create dynamic outcomes, which none none of the participants could have foreseen. Mm. So one example would be, um, let's say you're an employer, and you want to advertise a new position, um, and you want to recruit people. And let's say I am a like high heel shoe salesperson, and I want to sell high heel shoes. I'm, the value to me of getting an ad in front of someone is a lot higher if that person is female. But for you, the value is, is the same, whether it's male or female, if they're qualified for the job. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a system where we're bidding against each other to get access to those eyeballs, mm. my like female-targeted adverts, which is fine, you know, it's legitimate for me to target um, female... Um, shoppers, because that's my sort of target audience for my product. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's illegitimate for you to target male or female. Mm-hmm. You have to go for both. But the system doesn't know that that's what's going on. So my t- my adverts are going to get seen by um, more women, and yours are not going to get seen by women because I'm going to be out outbidding you on those impressions. So then the result is without you even trying. You've accidentally discriminated
0: against female applicants for your job because your you have only got shown to men. Okay, like, so that seems like a really compelling argument for uh, more thinking around the issue. I don't actually understand part of what you said in terms of it seems like you're describing that we're competing for eyeballs. Yeah. Can you kind of break that down a bit? Yeah, so like if we're two companies, how come? How, is it because there's a limited amount of bandwidth or like time, or, or how does yeah. that work?
1: Well, so there's a limited amount of eyeballs to show things to, right? So every time someone comes to a page, let's say it's on the web, um, every time someone comes to a page, in the split second between them requesting that page and it showing up on their screen, there'll be an automatic auction. So let's say it's a news website, they load a page about a news story the news website then sends out a broadcast to an ad network, okay? And the ad network will have a bunch of clients who have um, strategies for bidding to show adverts to people. So I might have, you know, a budget that says, I want to find people who like high heel shoes. You have a budget that says, I want to find people that might be good for this job. And in a split second, I'll say, well, my maximum price to reach these people is, you know, 3P and yours is 2.5P, then I'm going to win that auction. Um, And this is just all happening automatically. There's no individual people
0: making decisions apart from setting the, like, bid amounts and stuff (coughs) like that. And so in that situation, the high-heeled salesperson has bid 3P for female eyes. Yeah. So does that mean that if a male... Internet surfer yeah. comes to that page. It's more likely that my uh, employment advert is yeah. going to be seen by a, a male eye.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because my because my strategy is well. No, I don't. If it, if it's if the visitor to the website is is male, then don't bother bidding. Okay. For you, it's like don't mind if it's male or female, and you'll win the auction. That's
0: really interesting. And so I suppose you know, we it would be really cool to see like a breakdown of the most commonly targeted demographics for yeah. products um, and the budgets, because that would kind of let us understand a bit more about um, which groups might not be seeing stuff that are kind of nominally uh, aimed at everybody.
1: Yeah. And then you also get like, it's very similar to retail. And like, imagine you've got a bunch of product, a bunch of stock that you can't get rid of. So it goes in the bargain Bin. bargain bucket right? so it's the same with this so let's say I have a website that not many people visit or the kinds of people that visit it are not very profitable to advertise to then and let's say the advertiser is a charity who doesn't have much money they'll get the, the bargain basement ad impressions mm. so they're, so if you go to a, a website which, which is visited by people who don't normally click on adverts then that would be really cheap so you might see a bunch of charity adverts because they're not putting enough money in to get shown on the more profitable Mm -hmm. places. So that's just an example where, you know, there's no individual malice on anyone's part, but because there isn't um, sort of understanding the issue, understanding the whole complex interaction of different actors and different algorithms, we don't get to sort of predict that those problems are going to arise ahead of time. So you kind of need to have controls either at the level of the ad network or maybe controls that that you as the employer would have to ensure that you get sort of equal coverage of your advert.
0: Mm. Yeah, that, that's such an interesting dynamic. I, I wonder if you know about how that compares to like TV adverts. So, you know, for example, if I'm an ad company and there's a program which is particularly viewed by a certain demographic, I might kind of aim for that slot. Um, so let's say it's you know educating essex and i'm like oh, i want to advertise my amazing marker pen for teachers or whatever and um, so i might really go for that slot mm. did so like how does that compare in contrast to what you're describing like
1: well i think yeah to some extent you can you can make the same argument like if if advertisers go by so they call it contextual advertising so it's where you target to the content rather than to the person so in the old in, in TV advertising, magazine advertising, that's how you do it. In the modern day, you don't have to find the person through the content because if I'm – let's say I look, at, I look at like cars on one website and then I go to another website and I'm looking at politics. If you – given the way that advertising technology works on the web and on mobile, if you've dropped a cookie, which is like a, a little – sort of file that you put on my computer that basically has a record of the websites that I'm visiting and then I go to another website and look at something different, you can still see that I was looking at cars even though I'm now looking at politics. Mm. So there's the personal targeting involved that means that you don't have to go by content.
0: Got you. So it's actually a a completely different ballgame in terms of you're not using content to differentiate your... The market. You're just using someone's history.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Mm. So I think that's the main difference. But it also it it changes things a lot because if you think about in the past, if you wanted to find, let's say, you wanted to target adverts at Financial Times readers because they're you know a bit more wealthy than you know other readers of other magazines, um you'd have to go to the Financial Times and put your advert in the magazine or on the website. Mm. Um, nowadays. You can find Financial Times readers when they're on wikihow.com or when they're on YouTube or, mm. or whatever, and that's not necessarily going to cost you as much. But it means that the sort of kudos, the brand that the FT have built up, the money that they can make from that is being leaked mm. to other places.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, and I, and I don't feel bad for the FT guy, but obviously yeah. the principle there is, is kind of quite uh, an interesting one. I, I suppose... Playing devil's advocate, like what's the problem with that? Like if I if I like certain stuff and and you know you're making it easier for me to find that stuff, why, you know, why why is there an issue there?
1: In terms of personalisation, like it's, let's say so use the argument
0: if you send me stuff that's more
1: personalized, it'll be more relevant. I like it more.
0: Yeah, exactly. I'll I'll get less kind of letters through my letterbox right. for for flowers I don't yeah. want to buy it or whatever.
1: Yeah. And I think I think some people do feel that way about advertising and that's you know that's fine but when i ask those people okay but do you actually click on adverts not many of them do like not many people actually go oh let me see what the advert is on this page mm-hmm. cuz it's going to be really targeted and i might want to buy the thing but mm-hmm. yeah, most people if you want something you go and get it like you you search for it you you know there aren't but then you know the the alternative sort of argument be well there's a lot of stuff that we don't know we want until we see an advert for it Mm. but um yeah it's an interesting sort of psychological question like how does how does um sort of our consumer behavior our desire for new stuff where does that come from does it come from like subtle cues of things that we see does it come from peers does it come from you know Culture more generally,
0: yeah. Um, so I mean, it's yeah. a massive question, and I've I've had some really powerful moments where the the kind of influence of adverts have been felt, and you know, my fa- my favourite one that just popped into my head is uh, my favourite because it doesn't involve an, an advert; it involves social media, which is you know I think interesting in itself. So my cousin put up on his Instagram stories that he was so excited about eating this Domino's pizza. <laughs> and there was something about this Domino's pizza that looked so tasty and and so for the next few days I didn't just want a pizza, I specifically wanted a Domino's pizza and it was just so bizarre to me because you know I I, I do like pizza so you know obviously they hadn't convinced me to start eating pizza but I was specifically after this Domino's pizza, and I can't, I can't even remember the last time I had Domino's pizza. I don't, I don't even think about Domino's as a brand, right? But th- then for like days, I wanted this Domino's pizza, and I fucking bought my Domino's pizza and I ate it, you know. And and so yeah, there there was something there around um, just putting that in my mind, and it it felt it felt really weird because mm. suddenly I was thinking about something I had never thought about before. Mm. And,
1: and so then the question is did you enjoy did you enjoy the pizza did you endorse the fact that you'd been maybe influenced into buying it was it overall like a good thing or yeah, is it I guess I'm wondering like if it's if it operates like that and we buy stuff and we like it then yeah maybe what's the problem but i if you say it feels weird maybe it's there's something else going
0: on. Yeah, well, I mean, emotionally, it felt weird, and equally, it felt satisfying eating it. So I don't, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but I was, I was talking with my friend Josh about this the other day because he, so he has quite a different view to me uh, about the subject. But something I was saying to him was that if I leave the house, you know, I start my day. I I've left the house. I've eaten. I've had a coffee. I'm going. I'm going to work. I'm in this kind of active living life mode and okay I might see some adverts on the bus or you know that there's a kind of a window of time when I'm being exposed to adverts in between you know my front door and, and where, I, where I'm going to work that day but the thing that I think I feel uncomfortable about is that I'm also being exposed to adverts at times when I'm more vulnerable because I'm more tired mm-hmm. or maybe I'm more stressed or I'm hungry you know I'm I'm Physiologically, in a less secure place, and I, and I wonder if that means that I'm more susceptible to adverts at those times. Uh, and at the very least, it feels ethically a bit weird that I should be fair game at nine thirty p.m. when I'm in bed and you know looking looking forward to going to sleep to an advert as you know when I when it's like nine thirty a.m. and I'm I'm awake and I'm alert, you
1: know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, if you take it to as extreme, this argument, so we, you know, many of us experience these kind of, you know, moments of weakness and conflict in our daily lives, but if you take it to an extreme, look at something like, um, gambling. So gambling, if you're, if you have problem gamblers, then they're constantly in this vulnerable position. And if you're, if you're a sort of evil gambling company, then you want to find those people because mm-hmm. they're always in that position. Um, So that's an area where even stronger regulation has been put in place. And um, for things like fixed odds betting terminals, um, there's a lot of work looking at how can we, based on the the way that people interact with this machine, can we identify if they're a problem gambler or not? And there's that line between problem or non-problem that is an interesting one. At the moment, it's being drawn... Um, For things like problem gambling, it's being drawn, I don't know how exactly, but there must be some threshold you have to pass before you're seen as a problem. And the the machine then kicks in and the regulation kicks in and says, okay, the normal way that the machine operates, which is to try and hook people, has to be interrupted and stopped. But we're not there with general advertising, I guess, because people don't think of the harm as being significant enough. Mm. But, you know, over the course of a whole lifetime, all those little decisions
0: and all those little... Um, weaknesses might add up to something more significant and I think that there's a there's a question there around how we view addiction Mm. Um, and you know I suppose I'm thinking about building up a tolerance and I can't really have a component to it but anyway um, if we have intrusive thoughts about a particular brand or item or or, you Mm. know whatever you know would we regard that as a kind of as an addictive behaviour, I don't, I don't know. But but it's interesting that we don't trust, presumably, the gambling company mm. to self-regulate because, mm. you know, their gambling companies are going to mm. try and get the most money out of someone as possible, right? So to ask them to then find and, and, and respect this bright line for a, a problem gambler would seem to be counterintuitive. Is, is that kind of how it works or is there a third party that...
1: Well, I, th- I think I'm not an expert on gambling regulation, but I think, I think there are different models, right? So there's there's kind of um, no regulation. You know, companies do what they want. There's like self regulation where companies say, you know, here's we think that there are issues, there are problems, but if you just trust us, we can come up with our own rules that will be sensible. So they might have like a you know a gambling association might get together and. Um, you know, propose some rules that they have to follow. And there's kind of co-regulation. So, um, the idea that, you know, the state and the private sector get together to, to try and work together to figure out what the rules should be. Um, then you've got sort of traditional regulation, which is like command and control where every thing that's allowed is said to be allowed by the state and by regulation and everything that isn't, there's not, um, and where are we at in terms of online advertising now? That's a good question. So I mean, there's it kind of touches on on different areas. So where I what I work on is more in data protection, which is around how is it has to be around how the data is used and how the data might be used to undermine um, someone's privacy or in some cases other fundamental rights. Um, but other areas of regulation might be around. So, advertising standards—is the content of the advertisement um, fit for? Is it is it lying about the product? Is it kind of um, offensive, or is it you know? So those so those different areas of regulation will work in different ways. But in terms of where we are with the more subtle problem of um, online companies who use perhaps slightly manipulative techniques to hook us, um, we're kind of in an interesting area I think there's some people who are calling for um something like a right to our own attention or right to kind of informational um or attentional overload or attentional self control um and we've got a PhD student um, at Oxford who is um he's called Ulrich Lings he's working on um trying to apply traditional models of self-regulation from psychology into this online space to think about or all the different ways that you can design a product, how are they triggering different um, mechanisms that we have in our brain for self-control? How are they undermining them? And then there's this new world of of tools that's opening up that claims to help people with their self-control. So things like the Facebook newsfeed eradicator. So that basically, if you install that plugin on on your browser, it will remove the Facebook newsfeed. So if you need to go on Facebook to message someone or you need to go on Facebook to check an event, you're not going to be confronted with a newsfeed of distracting material. It will just be removed. And you can turn it on if you want to see it, but if you don't, it's not going to interrupt you. So this kind of world of self-control is quite interesting. Um, But it's interesting as well because a lot of the, the founders or the early employees at some of the really big Silicon Valley companies are also... Getting in on this concern about um, you know about screen time, about mm-hmm. addiction to technology, and a lot of them are sort of banning their kids from using any technology at all. They're setting up things like um, what's it called, the Center for Humane Technology, I think it's called. Oh, okay. Um, and so they're saying, you know, we need to have a new, new ways to sort of reduce people's addiction to technology, but. I think that's interesting because it's coming out of that Silicon Valley world where these technologies were were sort of um, made popular. And it's interesting that the framing of it is around um, attention as this resource that is kind of there to be protected as an asset or, you know, another narrative might be that um, there's screen time, which is unproductive and then there's like something else, which is productive time. But actually in reality, it's, I think the way people interact with technology is much more ambiguous. Mm. We're simultaneously distracting ourselves with useful things or we are Mm. um, doing useful things while being distracted. And distraction is actually, we will always have multiple goals at any one time. So who's to say that, you know, being distracted by talking to your friend when you should be doing work, that's only distraction if you, Place the work as a higher importance than the friend right mm. and so at some point you've got to say well what it's a, it's a tension between different priorities that people might have but distraction implies a binary of
0: something good and something bad mm. yeah that's really true and I and I think I've read a lot about screen time over the last couple of weeks and it's it, it's really hard to define what screen time is right mm-hmm. because you know and you kind of alluded to it is is screen time any time of a screen or is screen time any time when you're not being productive with a screens uh you know it is, is screen time uh if if i'm writing a report for work and then i go into amazon is that, is that all the same quality of screen time mm-hmm. uh, and, and how can we decide? Um, and, and I suppose also there's kind of like quite a nebulous thing there around the unintended benefits you might get from distraction. So, you yeah. know, if I find a really interesting journal link and it's not directly related to what I'm writing at that time, but it is related to my work, actually reading about that and learning about that in the moment could be really useful for me, you know, three three months down the line when I'm working with a different child and family, for example. Mm. Um, and that, yeah, it's quite, that model of distraction almost is a bit outdated maybe because it kind of makes me think of like, if I'm reading a book and I get up to have a conversation, as opposed to, you know, where we can have multiple tabs, mm. you know, not just metaphorically in our brain, but literally in front mm. of us and then clicking between them quite fluidly. Mm. It's quite interesting. Um, I feel like you talked a bit about nudging earlier mm. and I suppose this is something that you drew my attention to I think was something you published but it might have been something you shared around the idea that when we were talking earlier about there being only a certain amount of eyeballs and competing for it the idea that people might be lobbying for my eyeballs and mm. nudging me and my behavior in a certain direction mm. uh, and that seems quite tricky for me to interact with because I like to think on a day to day I'm quite autonomous you know when I'm not buying Domino's pizza because I've been (laughs) shown it by my cousin um so yeah do you do you know what I'm talking about and if you do can you kind of explain it for people
1: yeah so I mean there's there's a few terms that have cropped up about this so one is the idea of um kind of digital market manipulation so rather than so we so. People manipulate markets in all kinds of ways, um, but having access to all of this data about how we behave and being able to sort of identify biases or weaknesses that people might have and then exploit that, that's one kind of term. The other term is like coming more from the sort of um, interaction design world, which is around dark nudges or dark patterns. So they have this notion of like design patterns, which is like, you know, a form with a, a stem button would be like a design pattern. But um, dark, dark patterns refers to, um, you know, one, one, in, one in instance of that would be um, a, a box that's pre-ticked and the, the tip, if you, you tick the box if you want to do the thing that you don't really want to do, right? So that would be a dark pattern where the box is pre-ticked. Um, so those kinds of things coming from the design perspective. Um, and yeah, the idea is that there, there might be something that you don't really want to do, but the, the way that the system is designed, it's it's nudging you towards that thing. And the, the notion of a nudge is quite a sort of vague one, um, but it was popularised by, by the book uh, Nudge by um, Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler. Um, and that basically was a pitch to policymakers to say, look, you know, you don't need to spend money to get better outcomes. What you need to do is change the way that people interact with things. So change the defaults on the pension form. Uh, put a little picture of a of a, of, a, of a fly in the urinal so that people aim at it and don't splash around the sides. That's another example from that book. Or put the healthy food at eye level because people buy more of it. Mm. So the, these kinds of tweaks to the choice architecture that people face. Um, But obviously, all those techniques can be repurposed for all kinds of different ends. So if you're you're a company that wants to make money, then you
0: can employ the same techniques to to do that. And I suppose that, you know, nudge, nudge is such a friendly word, isn't it? Oh, I'm (laughs) just going to nudge you. And when you're talking about, you know, benevolent options like, oh, we want to help people save for their old age or, oh, we want to help people eat more fruit and vegetable. Yeah, cool but obviously you can also be nudging people in a way that doesn't necessarily benefit them. Yeah. And I think the the example that I remember, and I might have been kind of making this up or uh, adding to it in a creative way after reading it, was that you might have an individual who has been looking up gym memberships and has also been using Deliveroo to order burgers. Mm. And so, you know, they have this like, spectrum of options in terms mm. of what they could be doing on their phone yeah and you know we might if we're taking a quite within person look at this say well it's their choice whether they want to go to the gym or order a burger and deliver mm. but what i feel like we're getting at is that actually the phone might not be an objective tool that they're using it might also be nudging them in in a direction mm. is that kind of vaguely
1: yeah 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 so we have so I wrote this um, paper with, with some of my colleagues, which was which was quite a fun sort of exploration of some of these ideas. So we were thinking, well, what if you were genuinely, if you really, really, really wanted to do what people was best for people or what people most wanted, and you wanted to say, we don't, we don't want to just, like, measure people's behaviour and then give them more of what they did in the past. We want to give them what they really want or maybe what they really need or or something. Um, so we' like how would you do that? What what kinds of things could you do? Um, and it just turns out to be really, really difficult to work out what would count as a genuine desire or a, a real preference, because the whole notion of preference is something that's continuously constructed. It's a process. And you can never be sure that you've really captured what someone really wanted. Yeah. Because people are, are complicated, conflicted, um so you know you can measure people's behavior you could try and uh put people through a process where you uh inform them of all the facts and you allow them to consider the range of different kind of moral positions that they might take on something and then you could see what they say and then you could try and use that to predict in general if people start out with these beliefs and then you inform them then they end up in this place Mm. and then you could use that to sort of predict for other people, what they would would really want. But is that really giving them what they really want? Because they're still the person that they are in that present moment. So yeah, it kind of ends up being this impossible task of trying to figure out what people really want. I think it's easier for people to think in terms of, well, if something is manipulating me in any way, then that's bad. But when you really scratch beneath the surface, everything is some form of manipulation. Uh, So I guess it's about what, what kinds of manipulation you feel comfortable with. And I think um, for some people at least it's, um, it's a question of if someone's profiting from manipulating me, then that's something that I have a concern with. If it's just that, you know, you're influenced by the people you're around, your family, you, the culture that you live in, then that's something that people are more willing to endorse and go along with. Mm. And, you know, it might be lots of my preferences are not rational, um, but they are my preferences just because of habit. And as long as they're not harming anyone, then it's it's something that I can endorse. I don't have to resist. I don't have to be like, you know, every single thing that might influence me isn't, you know, necessarily bad.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, you just made me think of some classic psychology experiments mm-hmm. about choice and humans are really bad at making choices, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I think I'm digging back to my A-level psychology here, but, you know, that there, there's one around a set of levers and railway tracks and, you know, you you essentially can direct the train onto track A or track B and on track, one of the tracks has a person tied down mm-hmm. and it's about, you know, how many people are going to die if you act or don't act. And, you know, what they saw is that people were less likely to make the harmful choice if they had to actively do it. They were also less likely to make the ethical choice if they had to actively do it as opposed to, you know, just letting the train run its course. And, mm. you know, what was interesting about that is it kind of shows how many um, best fit, you know, thoughts we we use, like heuristics, in terms of like, ah oh, it's probably good enough. Mm. Um, and so on a day-to-day, we're doing the same thing right in terms of our attention like mm-hmm. you know our brain is not showing us all of the sensory stimulus that we're perceiving mm-hmm. uh, so in a sense we are um, we are already uh, not, we're already being nudged mm-hmm. in this getting again except it's yeah. no one else is profiting
1: yeah yeah exactly and I mean you know you could you could if you wanted to you could recast everything in, in, as a nudge so you could say you know even the, even the Buddhist monk who's you know, deep in thought—not uh, deep, but deep in observing his own thoughts. Right? <laughs> he's that's he's still, um, you know, he's still not in control of the process of of the thoughts that come to him. So it's still kind of like a—you can go up underneath the surface, but eventually, it's all there's. It there's one form of influence or another. Mm. Yeah. Um, so then it comes down to like trying to locate that. The self, which I guess is what the Buddhists don't. Believe, yeah,
0: I'm definitely outside of my area of knowledge now. <laughs> and I, mean, yeah, I, I, can't, I can't talk about the self or Buddhism either. So I, <laughs> something that I feel like I've read a few articles about recently is the idea that algorithms might be biased in some way. So you know, the idea of um, recruitment algorithms or you know, being racist or sexist. And Mm. and I suppose we've kind of touched upon that a little bit with the idea of, you know, there only being so many eyeballs out there. Mm. But I I kind of feel like you might know a bit about algorithm design and be able to help us think about that because I find it quite hard when I read an article. It always seems quite compelling because Mm. the person knows more about it than me. And then I read an article with the opposite point and that is also compelling. And Mm. so I kind of don't really know whether this is a thing. You know.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there was a recent thing with um, that uh, American congresswoman, um Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, I think. She's, she's done. She's great, she's great. So she so she was being interviewed by someone, she was talking about facial recognition algorithms and how they can be biased. And then some right wing pundit was like, duh, you can't have it's it's all based on math, so it can't be biased. And then, you know. Uh, people that have been working on these issues for a while are like, no, actually, yes, she's completely correct. so so it's it's difficult because we have so many different ways of understanding what we mean by bias, what we mean by discrimination. but the way I see it is that she was fundamentally correct. Um, and there's there are several different ways that that that's true. So on one level, um even if you base um like a statistical, decision model that's there to, to predict or classify things even if you base that on data um, there are design choices that the designer of the algorithm can make that will make it more or less likely to give positive outcomes to one group or another mm-hmm. um, but even if you have a completely um, unbiased human designer which is probably impossible but just for the sake of argument imagine you did the data itself may be biased. And there's kind of two ways that the data itself can be biased. So one is, um, if you're from a minority population, then there'll be less data on people like you. So a model that's designed to fit the whole population will perform better on the groups that where there's more of them. Mm. Um, so it will be less predictively accurate, potentially. So that's one form of bias. So even if the data is all correct and um, representative of the population as it exists, the decision model you get out of the prediction or classification model could be less accurate simply because there's less data. Mm. Alternatively, the data could reflect real-world social discrimination or, you know, like secondary indirect discrimination. So if we're looking at, um, you know, Um, let's say hiring, it's a hiring algorithm that's there to work out which people to invite to the interview based on their CVs. And you train it based on data of previous employees. And let's say the previous employees are, you know, working in a restaurant or they're salespeople and they are um, selling to racist or sexist customers. Their sales figures are going to take a slight hit if if they're having to sell stuff to people who don't like them. Mm-hmm. But that data, the data that you collect on sales figures won't know that that's why they were, you know, not selling as much mm-hmm. as they could have done. So then you build a model on that. It's going to predict that they're not going to be so good. And that might even be accurate. The prediction might be accurate. Um, but the reason it's accurate is one that we don't want to perpetuate. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't want to stop hiring people because they're going to be discriminated against when they to sell. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there, and there are ways that people are developing to try and fix these things. Um, and there's a temptation in some of the more the people coming from a computer science background where the, the temptation is to say, okay, well, what does the law say about, you know, preventing discrimination? And we'll implement it in our system, and then we'll have a system that will work in a way that won't be biased. Um, and that's good as far as it goes. But, in reality, these problems are kind of difficult, knotty, complex social problems which are about the result of the interaction of the system and the people around it mm. and they don't and that addressing the system doesn't address the wider system, the social um socio technical system, but also the broader kind of economic and social world that we live in mm. um and it also Kind of forgets that a lot of the time these systems are being designed to be deployed on disadvantaged populations. So it's not that most. Um, it's not that these systems are being deployed, and and the kinds of people who will be subject to their decisions will be a random sample of population. So if it's an immigration system that's designed to work out who's uh, who's allowed to come into the country, the kinds of people who are who are subject to that system are. More likely to be disadvantaged anyway. Or if it's a, if it's a a, um, a loan, a, a payday loan company that wants to work out who to give loans to, the people that are applying for those loans in the first place are already disadvantaged. Mm-hmm. So you could have a completely unbiased or, or completely gender, race, religion, etc., unbiased system. But you know, if it's Wonga. It's still going to be a problematic system. Mm. So you could say our model is really fair, but the economic situation that that they're imposing on people isn't fair.
0: Yeah, uh, that's a really great breakdown because I suppose it it helped me understand the different levels of how something could be biased. But equally, even if something's not biased, it might be that the system is being applied in a biased way. Yeah. Um, or or not being applied. Uh, Across all across all groups, which is a nice way to think about it. You, you also, I mean, and this might not be a question that you can answer, um, but I'm going to ask you just because you're talking about statistical models. Um, so the other day, I was talking with some psychologists about using the normal distribution curve to understand intelligence or, or IQ mm-hmm. scores. Mm-hmm. And essentially, there seemed to be two views in the room. The first view was that, well in the same way that we see something like height is normally distributed, it makes sense that something like intelligence would be normally distributed where you have the majority of people with fairly similar intelligence and then some people who have um, really advanced intelligence that you know we, we'd struggle to understand and some people who need a lot of support to do things that most people would find quite easy. And then there was a, another view in the room which was that, well... IQ tests were designed back in the day as a measure of you know how how well someone was going to do at school and they created a, essentially a normal distribution model and so subsequently all models have used that as a as a thing to refer to and that that for me was really interesting because it took me out into a place where statistically I was completely at sea and I was like well I don't know what that means but it was yeah I suppose I'm looking at you as someone who might know about normal distribution <laughs> like that <laughs>
1: yeah um, uh, yeah I'll try I'll try I'll try and say I something but I just dragged I, him completely <laughs> no no <laughs> no it's, it's, it, it's definitely related I think because I mean so one one. I'm not a, I'm not great on the history of this but I did hear I can't remember where I think it might have been in um, there's, a, there's someone called Ian Hacking who's written a lot of books about probability about measurement of, in social science um, and about the creation of social categories or, or medical categories that are in part social categories. Mm-hmm. And I guess IQ would be one example where it's something which in some people's minds is a, is a biological thing. A lot of people recognise that it's a social thing and people differ about how those concepts relate to each other but um, i think what he one thing that i got from one of his books was that when they first designed iq tests they the first the first iq test they designed women were just getting systematically higher scores so they instead of saying well the test is good if women get higher scores that's just that's just it, they said no no we must have got the test wrong let's redesign the test to make sure that women <laughs> don't get higher scores um, so, you know, the, the choice of questions and the choice of how we define intelligence in terms of those questions is an, is a influenced by all these social factors. Mm. If it had been the other way around, and the first IQ test they designed had, had meant that men got higher scores, probably they wouldn't have gone back and redesigned it, right? Because the assumption was already that probably amongst those, those people that men were more naturally intelligent or something. Um so yeah you can design tests in order to make you can design any tests so that people will fall on a normal distribution and that's useful for all kinds of reasons because it helps to systematize how we treat people, how we segregate people. Um, and you know in some cases it's really useful right? if you know in if you have um, you know a chemical imbalance in your brain and you want to be prescribed drugs that are going to help you it helps if you can separate people into different pockets and uh, uh, enable all of the administration that goes on around that to happen. So statistics and statistical models can be useful for that kind of reason, but they can also be really abused for the same reasons. Um, And I think we often fall into like essentialist thinking or biological thinking when we're dealing with categories which are there for social reasons. At least partly for social reasons. Yeah. So we have we have these categories in order to organize a social world. And it might be that some categories allow us to organize it in more efficient ways or in ways that are that favor some kinds of ideologies or or whatever. But fundamentally it's you know you can always redesign these tests in different ways. You can always define these concepts in different ways. Um, but we tend to start with these social concepts like IQ or like you know folk concepts of of how people are uh, and that might be like gender binaries we have these folk concepts and then we'll design statistical tests to kind of confirm them and you see this with um in the debates about IQ differences between protected characteristics like gender like race etc where the idea is well yeah of course you know that you know it's not surprising that there are like differences between men and women in in different tasks right but we've already, by saying, by looking at differences between men and women, we've already decided that that's the category that's important. Um, and it's the same with, um, with, with uh, discussions of race and IQ. If you're studying that, you're, you're already pretending or accepting that race is a biological category that we can analyse in that way, mm. when actually it's a social category. And, you know, it, everyone knows that IQ is not, Something that is um, well, not everyone knows that. Sorry, but there's a there's a strong argument that IQ is designed for all kinds of social purposes, and that if we if we organise the world a different way, if we thought about these fundamental concepts
0: in a different way, the test would be different. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's so much there. I think. Uh, yes, I mean something. Something that I think became clearer during listening to you there was that actually. I want to do a podcast about intelligence generally, Mm -hmm. um, that there are such different views on intelligence Mm -hmm. um, and how we view that. I think that what you're saying about social categories is really interesting. Um, I think that something that I am yet to kind of wrangle out from a statistical point of view is that a lot of the cognitive assessments I use in my work are normed using other statistical, statistical mm. models from cognitive assessments mm. so it seems very self-referential you mm. know like the latest um, Weschler intelligence test will be normed using the previous Weschler intelligence test mm. and so I don't you know and that kind of makes sense if we assume the last intelligence test was an accurate mm. measure of different cognitive abilities and could produce a you know a meaningful IQ score mm. but if it couldn't or it or it was biased in a way that you've described in terms of you know coming from a, a deductive social kind of point of view, then we're just kind of perpetuating this mm. this line of thinking without really interrogating it properly, mm. uh, which is yeah, which is something that I think I need to think about. Um, I'm I'm not even gonna open up all of the cans of worms that you yeah. put in front <laughs> of me about um, race and and gender and I, IQ. I think that. There's so much there, but it is it was really interesting to hear you talk about how when you're designing tests, you have to make some social choices simply because that's just how it works. Like it's kind of mm. built into the process, right? Mm. Uh, and and it, it actually seemed kind of analogous to what you're describing in terms of the algorithm design, mm. right? Yeah. That you have to make some social choices um, and mm. intelligence test design uh, will have made those choices uh, it's interesting to think that those choices might have been made in the nineteen hundreds, mm. and and we're still kind of referring to them as yeah. kind of ways to normalise tests now. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there are lots of psychologists who will be shouting at their <laughs> headphones that that's not the case, but that's kind of an interesting thing to think about. I think as we kind of move into the end part of our conversation, I I'd, I'd kind of I'm curious whether as a lay person, me who uses technology, smartphone, laptop, etc there are pieces of advice you'd give me or sources that I could use to educate myself in terms of basically being a bit more aware or safe? Hmm, okay. Um, so the aware
1: would, would probably be... So safe, I think there are like a few basic things that you can do. Um, so uh, two-factor authentication is quite useful. So that's if you've... Um, got something important to protect that's on an account somewhere like it's your Google account or it's your um you know you it if you lose your password it's not the end of the world because you've got another factor to authenticate yourself um and a simple one is using an sms system um which is which is okay but it's not great because it's quite easy to to basically take control of someone's phone number so if someone's got your password and then they know your phone number, they can intercept your SMS. So you'd get this extra token that would come to your SMS, except someone might be able to intercept that. Mm. So things like you can use um, authenticator apps, which are on your phone, which are more secure, or you could use um, what's called a YubiKey, which is like a little USB key huh. that has a token on it. Um, so that's a physical thing. Uh, and so someone would have to steal that off you.
0: And get your password in order to... Suddenly it becomes more of a Mission Impossible style infiltration of your house than finding something because you used your laptop in a
1: cafe. Exactly. And then the other thing is you use a password manager, which basically means every time you start a new account somewhere, it will create a new password for you for that account. Whoa! So I've got like 300 passwords in my password manager and they're all different. So if one account gets hacked... They only
0: know the password to that account. That is, but bo- okay. Uh, break that down for me. So <laughs> we're essentially talking about like a platform that you would use.
1: Yeah, there's different ways you can do it. So you could have it. Lo- you can have them running locally, so just on your. So I could have it running just on my laptop, mm-hmm. and maybe have a backup in a in a on a hard drive somewhere that would contain all of them. Mm-hmm. Or you can have a cloud service, so it's stored somewhere securely, and then you can log into that, through your web browser Mm. Um, so yeah and then you have one password which unlocks all of those other passwords okay so but you don't need to use that password for anything other than that system Uh so you just have your password to log into your password manager and then all the other
0: accounts have their own unique password Mm. wow would it ever generate a new password on the fly every time you accessed it Oh, it would do that
1: Uh, every time you access
0: so let's say I am logging into PayPal. Yeah. Um, I'm using my password manager. Would it kind of create a password for that instance or would it?
1: No. So it would, it would save, it would remember the password from the last time you used PayPal. Okay. But it would make it really easy to like, um, let's say you have, um, uh, well, let me think this is a good example. Basically, when you start using it, you can put in your, it will, if you're using it on the browser, you can look at all the different sites you have and then you can like work out which ones use the same password, which ones you need uh-huh. to change. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, it's just a good model. And people say, oh, but you know, you're putting everything in one basket. Like what if someone hacked into your password manager? But if you're reusing the same password on different sites, you're already doing that. It's just in your head. Mm. So it's the same thing. You're putting all your eggs in one basket either way. Either you're putting all your eggs in one basket with a password manager or you're putting all your eggs in one basket if you reuse the same password on lots of sites. Yeah, but yeah. You, it's worse because the password to unlock your password manager is different, whereas if you're using the same password on lots of different sites, if it gets, if one of those sites get hacked,
0: then your account on all the other sites yeah. will also be hacked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really scary. And so on. on top of that, there's the two-factor authentication Um, process which means Mm -hmm. that even if somebody had your password they would need something else to to access yeah the important stuff yeah so that's kind of safety yeah um i suppose awareness man that's quite a nebulous uh concept to give you but i suppose i mean at the moment i don't really know what i should be thinking about in terms of my data or the way that i receive adverts or anything like that it, it, are there maybe some blogs or
1: um what would i recommend so much good stuff out there mm. that it's it's difficult to to pinpoint any one thing uh, I'll, I'll be like annoying uh, i'll be like uh, disloyal to one, to one <laughs> set of friends over another.
0: at least you're not just recommending your um, own papers
1: <laughs> <laughs> no there's so much good stuff out there i mean there's There's loads of interesting work going on here in the UK, in the US, um, you know, all around the world, really.
0: Um, What what kind of terms should I Google?
1: uh, Okay, good question. Um, If you're interested in the sort of AI and bias stuff, there's um, a lot of the words people use are things like fairness, accountability, and transparency in the context of machine learning. Mm -hmm. Although... Even those terms are also being contested at the moment because people are thinking, well, you know, what about justice? What about political mm. economy and so on? Mm. Um, people I really rate to, who describe things that are complicated and complex and difficult but in a really accessible way. Um, there's an academic and journalist called Zeynep Tufekci. I think is how you say her name. Okay. Um, she writes really good stuff. Um, yeah, check her out. She's good on all the things we've been talking about, bias, security, et cetera. Um, Yeah, uh, I'll leave it at that, I think. Cool.
0: (laughs) And if people want to find you, where can they find you?
1: Um, On Twitter, I am at rdbinns. That's probably the best place. Or just Google my name because I'm fairly uh, search engine optimized. Um, great yeah there's one other Ruben Ben he's a window cleaner from Peterborough
0: fair play I mean he also might be dealing with transparency but... yeah yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> very good very
0: good and that was that um, it was so lovely to talk to Ruben and he was really kind with his time and I felt like we had a really genuine conversation he really helped me to think more about areas simply because he knew so much more than me about the topics. So I'm really thankful for that. Please let me know what you think. Um, Please share the episode with people you think might find it interesting and subscribe to the podcast. If you haven't, Uh, lastly, you can contact us in the show notes and there's a new sizzle Twitter at the sizzle pod which I'll be using to share information about guests and episodes. So follow that and stay in the loop. All right, love. This is a-